let's just show our appreciation for those children's ministry workers and for all those kids. Amen. Appreciate you. Well, I hope you have your Bible with you and you're able to open it now to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Matthew 6, 19 to 24. We're continuing to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, For the last couple of weeks, of course, we've been talking about religious hypocrisy. Uh, Jesus is stressing to his disciples the importance of doing the right thing, the right way, for the right reasons. He's asking us the question, when you pray, when you do your deeds of righteousness, are you doing these things for God, or are you doing these things for the applause and approval of other people? Of course, that's a very important question. So last week, we looked at the Lord's Prayer, which was given in part as a guard against religious hypocrisy. Jesus wants us to be singular in our focus when it comes to our our acts of righteousness. All those things, everything we do in the Christian life is supposed to be done before an audience of one. And so now here in the midway point of chapter 6, there's an obvious transition. It's it's a transition, but it's it's a related transition. Uh, Here, uh, Jesus goes from speaking about our singular focus in terms of our deeds of righteousness Now just speaking about our singular allegiance when it comes to our values and ambitions in life. So we'll read from verse 19 all the way through to verse 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is Jesus speaking. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In order for us to understand and then ultimately, hopefully, apply uh, this teaching, we're going to need to explore some of the underlying assumptions that support it. Now, I don't know whether your grandma had all kinds of helpful sayings or not, but my grandma told me that bad things happen when we assume Uh, And I think, though, in this situation, Grandma will give us an exception, uh, because while my assumptions can and should be challenged, and your assumptions can and should be challenged, I think Grandma would agree that the assumptions of Jesus should be shared by all, because his assumptions are based on an absolutely reliable perspective. He sees the beginning and the end. He sees the whole board. So what Jesus assumes to be true is true. And if we don't share his assumptions about the nature of human life and reality, then we're going to have a very hard time indeed wrapping our heads around what he is commending to us here. So let's do that. Let's begin by noticing what Jesus is assuming. I think the first thing we notice here is that Jesus is essentially assuming the worldview of the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, the word vanity can be tricky for some of us as English readers because uh, it has a variety of meanings, and the one that is most common today uh, is the sense of being conceited or petty. But actually, there's a whole other range of meanings for the word vanity, uh, including to be fleeting 
or to be ephemeral, passing. And that is the sense that it is being used here. When the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, he's saying everything in this world is fleeting. It is fading. It is failing. Nothing material lasts. Nothing material is solid or reliable. Everything turns to sand in your hand. All we are is dust in the wind. You remember that? Kansas had it right. Right? Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind, etc. Right? Dust in the wind. That's the idea. Everything we try to hold to crumbles to the dust. This world is transitional. That's what the preacher meant when he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He said, look around. Look around. Everything that you see in this world, not, nothing here is going to be here in 10 billion years. Nothing here is real. Nothing here is ultimate. If, if you want something that is ultimate, if you want something that is real, you have to look to God. That is the worldview being assumed by Jesus in this passage. That's why he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Doesn't make sense, right? Why? Why would you make a significant deposit into a bank that you knew was going to be demolished in three weeks? You wouldn't do that, right? Why would you invest in things that are going to crumble and disappear? Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That, that's the, the prayer, the, the, the classic prayer that goes with this worldview. Naked I came into this world. Naked I will leave it. Right? There's, there's nothing permanent in this life. Oh, but blessed be the name of the Lord. There is value. There is beauty. There is meaning. There is eternity. Thanks be to God. So if you don't see that assumption, if you don't understand the worldview here, then nothing Jesus is going to say in the next six verses is going to make any, any sense to you. Jesus is operating under the biblical assumption that this world is passing away. And then secondly, Jesus is operating under the assumption that there is such a thing as treasure in heaven. He says, don't, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, but rather, he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So uh, to state the obvious, Jesus believes that there is such a thing as treasure in heaven and, and that pursuing treasure in heaven, that, that he obviously assumes that the things that we do here on earth can result in an increase or, or decrease in our treasure in heaven. And understanding that and even, in fact, pursuing greater treasure in heaven is a legitimate motivation for Christian life and behavior. Again, that's, that's part of the biblical worldview. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. Most of us would agree there. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And, here's the part I'm not sure we still believe, and that he rewards those who seek him. Isn't that interesting? You hearing that? According to the Bible, you cannot, you will not live a life that pleases God unless you believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Treasures in heaven, reward from God 
is consistently held out in the Bible as a legitimate and necessary motivation for the sacrifices and hardships that we face in this life. You know, one of the reasons I think maybe we, we are less uh, on board with this teaching than, than probably grandma and grandpa and great-grandma and grandpa were is just because we, we have so much good now. We almost wonder, you know, what could heaven offer that I don't already have? And so it's, it's kind of become like, meh. And we think, well, you know, you, <clears throat> probably heaven's not motivating to anybody anymore, so you should just do the right thing, uh, and you should just do it out of the goodness of your heart. That's a pretty naive perspective on human nature, because uh, human nature actually would reveal that most of what you think is good and right in your own heart is wildly self-interested. It's what's good and right for you. And, and, and so we, we do need to be mindful of the eternal scale of rightness and wrongness. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with being motivated by a good day on judgment day. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, the Bible says you'll, <clears throat> you're not going to make it. You're not going to make the choices you should. You're, you're not going to make the sacrifices you should. Unless you're thinking about that day. But like I said, it, it's become very common now for people to say, gee, I don't know. I don't know whether that's a very noble motivation. I don't, I don't know whether Christians should be thinking like that. It's been going on for quite some time. I would say it's been going on for as long as Western society has been massively prosperous. It was going on in the 50s. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones addressed it directly in one of his sermons. He assumed the question, and he said, my reply to that question is that I am but obeying the exhortation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, and the saints have always done so. They believed in the reality of the glory that awaited them. They, they hoped to get there, and their one desire was to enjoy it all in its perfection and in all its fullness. My advice is, you know, beware of thinking yourself holier than Jesus and all the saints across history. Human beings require motivation. Motivation is not intrinsically evil. What matters is what you are motivated by. Human beings are, are goal-oriented creatures. And Jesus said, that's fine. Just make sure that you're aiming at the right things because your life follows what your heart aims at. That's what he says in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You understand that? What you aim at matters. What you daydream about it's who you become. What you look at is where you drive. You teach that to your kids, don't you? Don't you say, don't listen, don't just stare at the front of the car, right? And, and, and don't be waving at your friends while you're driving. And don't be talking to the people behind you. Why? What is, I mean, they, that's like, I think that's lesson one at Young Drivers of Canada, isn't it? Where you look is where you go. So don't they say, look two, three car lengths down the road? Because that's where you're going. That's what matters. Where you look is where you go. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Therefore, the Bible says, therefore, set your mind on things above. That's wisdom, according to the biblical worldview. And that worldview, which I said, you know, has been common for, for hundreds and thousands of years, all of a sudden... There's huge gaps in terms of the 
worldview of the modern Western person and the biblical worldview being commended here. So we kind of had to brush up on that. We need to see the worldview that undergirds this, this teaching. Now, having done that, let's talk about what Jesus is commending to his disciples in this passage. Look again at verses 22 to 24. Jesus uses two parallel metaphors, meaning he, he, these are two illustrations of the basic principle. He's saying the same thing two different ways to provide a little depth and nuance for his hearers. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So two metaphors, two illustrations. Uh, the first of those parallel metaphors is the one uh, that we struggle with in English because it's, it's just an expression that doesn't cross over very well from one language to another. You know, and every language is filled with those. Uh, thousands of years from now, should the Lord tarry, people will be trying to figure out, you know, what does willy-nilly mean? Uh, like, there's no, who knows? And uh, what does a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush mean? Like, good luck translating that into, you know, a, a cultural context where the, all their food is in pellet form and, and there are no birds and, you know, like, good, good luck. And there's no willy, there's no nilly. No one has any idea what we were talking about. So, well, so it is here. This, this is an expression that just we struggle to translate over into English. The Greek word that the ESV puts in there as healthy uh, actually means singleness. That's what it literally means, but that doesn't help us. The old King James Version uh, left it there. I'm not sure if it was was helpful. It was certainly accurate. The old King James had it as the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. So the, the, while the, the idiom doesn't translate over exactly linguistically, the sense of it is pretty clear. What Jesus is saying is that uh, the eye to the body or to the life is kind of like the window to the house. If your windows are, are correctly angled towards the sun, then, then your house is going to be filled with light. But if your windows are, are off, you know, if, you're, if your only window points to an alley, for example, then your life is going to be filled with darkness and shadow. That's what Jesus is saying. What, what Jesus is rebuking here is false or divided ambition. If you are not consistently and fixedly aimed at God, your life is going to be filled with darkness and shadow. The second metaphor, I think, is much more accessible to us. Uh, most of us can easily imagine the impossibility of being a slave with two masters. How, how, would, that, how would that work? Um, that's impossible. By definition, a slave is someone whose whole life revolves around the, 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 the master. If you had two masters, eventually you would have to choose. You'd be in a situation where you either had to honor the one and dishonor the other or or honor the one and dishonor the other. That's what Jesus is saying. You're going to love the one. You're going to prove your loyalty to the one, and you're going to prove your disloyalty to the other. Inevitable, it's going to happen because that's what a slave is. A slave with divided loyalties is no slave at all. So putting these two metaphors together, I think it's pretty clear what Jesus is after here. He is calling on his disciples to maintain a singular focus and allegiance in this life. That's it. That's what the passage is about. Now here, obviously, he's talking about wealth as a potential rival to that singular focus and allegiance. But of course, elsewhere, you you probably remember this, elsewhere, Jesus could talk about family as a a rival. And and that makes sense, right? I mean, 2,000 years of history have have, uh, come and gone 
since Jesus said this, but nothing has really changed in, in terms of the chief loves and loyalties of the human heart. What are the chief rivals to your singular devotion to God today as a 21st century North American living in Aurelia? It's still the same answer, isn't it? Money and family. Those are the two most common idols in the church, and they have been for 2,000 years. And so Jesus will give, you know, he can give the principle and then apply it in different, different directions. He does that with family in Luke 14, 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Same principle, right? He even uses the same word, hate. You notice that? Hate. That's the word we stumble over, hate. It's the same word he's using in Matthew 6, 24. You're going to love the one and hate the other. Now, we often stumble over Luke 14, 26, uh, because we know that Jesus wouldn't want us to hate our, our spouse, our children, our parents. Jesus told us to love everybody, even our enemies. So what's he getting at here? D.A. Carson's helpful. He says, he, Jesus, he means that any man's best love and first allegiance, notice those words, best love, first allegiance, must be directed toward the Father and toward the Son whom he sent, and that even family ties must be considered secondary. So that's exactly what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 6, 24. In that language and in that culture, it was very common to use the expression love and hate to emphasize an emphatic choice. Not this, but that. Sometimes choices are binary. When you're deciding what is the center what is the best? What is the top? That's a binary choice. Not this, but that. The Bible talks this way all the time, right? Romans 9, 13. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That's, that's a Semitic way of saying, I chose Jacob and emphatically not Esau. See, the Bible is running towards the truth that we try to run away from, which is that some choices are binary. Not this, but that. Only one. You can have only one best friend. You understand that. See, we as Westerners try to pull back from that. We're like, well, you're all my best friend. That's impossible. That's not what the word best means. The Bible forces us to understand that we can only have one master. We can only have one top priority. We can only have one first allegiance. And so this is Jesus actually just applying what he told us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, this is what you're praying for. You're saying, God, be first in my life. Be my top priority. Be my first loyalty. Be my, my foundational allegiance. So this is that, right? That's what you're praying for. If you Pray that prayer, brother or sister. If you pray that prayer, and you pray it with understanding, then be prepared for the fact that God will begin to move against every other rival loyalty in your life, including your family, including your wealth. Because there can be only one sun in your solar system. Everything else has to be pushed back into its proper priority and orbit. That's what this passage is about. So to be clear, it's, it's not saying 
that to have money is, is evil. Some of us look at this passage, and we're really just drawn to the application. The application is you cannot, have, you cannot uh, serve both God and money. Good. But as we said, Jesus applies the same principle to family too, right? But we're directed to the, to the application because in our heart of hearts we know, yes, we struggle with this, right? So we kind of move past the principle right into the application. So actually, to, so we think this is a passage all about money. And, and it is to, to an extent, but it's money as an illustration of a principle. But so actually what we decided to do is, because in my mind I knew there was a sermon you were expecting. This is going to be a sermon about money. And so we're going to do that next week. Next week we're going to do like a zoom out and what does the Bible say about money? But to be clear, what the Bible is not saying, at least in this passage, the This passage is not saying that it is a sin to have money. Any more than Luke 14 is saying that it's a sin to have a wife, children, spouse, or parents. It's just saying those things can't be the center. They can't be first. Only one thing can be first. No one can serve two masters. Because if you try, eventually, you're going to hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve God and money, any more than you can serve God and spouse, any more than you can serve God and career. Only one thing can be the first principle in your life. So think about that before you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Don't, don't pray that if you don't understand what you're asking for. So do you see how these passages are connected here? The goal of of this passage is to commend to all disciples a singular love, loyalty, and allegiance to God through the person and work of Christ. So how are we going to do that? Uh, How in the world are we going to do that? Once again, the goal of the Sermon on the Mount is uh, to serve as a standard. Uh, The subtitle for this series is The Beautiful Tune We Love So Well and Play So Poorly. The Sermon on the Mount is what Christianity, what the Christian life is supposed to look and sound like. So it is pitch perfect. But none of us are are pitch perfect. And so the goal is that we would use this like a tuning fork. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Every time you read it, it's like somebody just hit you in the forehead with a tuning fork. Bing! And you all of a sudden you're like, ah, that's what I'm supposed to sound like. That's what my priorities are supposed to be. That's how my life is supposed to go together. But of course, all of us are out of tune. The Sermon on the Mount is not a sermon about how to get saved. It's not saying do this, 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 and and God will love you. No, no, no. The Sermon on the Mount is saying God has saved you. He's made your brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Now here is how you ought to live. Here's how you ought to put your universe together. Here is how to be like Jesus. And so with the Spirit in us, by one degree of glory, the goal is that we're supposed to bring our lives into harmony with this tune. So how do we do that? How do, how do we partner with the process? That's what I'm asking here. Let me leave you with a couple of practical suggestions. First one is this. Conduct an audit on your time, your talents, and your treasure. Before you reorder your solar system, of course, you need to explore your solar system. You need to be honest with yourself in terms of how you put your life together. And so that's what I mean by conduct, conduct an, audit, an, an audit. Where are you spending your time? Where are you spending your talents? Where are you spending your treasure? That's the issue here. Again, this issue is, or, or this passage is, is not saying that you can't have money any more than it's saying that you can't have a spouse or you, you can't have parents. 
We're talking about order and priority. So when it comes to money, we're asking the question, how much and how deployed? Listen carefully to what Jesus actually says in this passage. He says, do not lay up for yourselves. There's a key little phrase. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. So accumulation and deployment. That's what we're talking about here. How much am I keeping for myself? How am I spending the wealth that God has given me the power to make? Again, it's, it's not a sin if you're able to make a lot of money. The Bible literally says God gives us the power to make wealth. So the issue isn't how much can I make? The issue isn't how much do I have? The issue is how much am I spending on myself? How am I deploying the resources God has given me the ability to make, to have? That's what we want to know. Here are a couple of questions that can help get us there. Question number one, what percentage of my time, talent, and treasures, what percentage is spent on kingdom pursuits, and what percent is spent on personal pursuits? Here's another helpful question in your audit. Question two, when times are tough, what budget lines shrink and what budget lines stay the same? Just those two questions ought to tell you everything you need to know about your values, focus, and priorities. Uh, there's, an old, there's an old story uh, that has been told so many times. I think we've lost track of who told it first. It probably doesn't matter. The point is it's true in a variety of ways. It's the story of a farmer who one day went to his wife, uh, very excited, with great news. He said, honey, our best cow has had twins. We got two calves, one white and one red. And so with great gratitude in his heart, he said, dear, we must dedicate one of these calves to the Lord's work. So we'll bring them up together, and when the time comes, we'll sell one and keep the proceeds uh, for ourselves, and we'll sell the other and give it to the Lord's work. His wife concurred. She was also very grateful. And uh, she asked him which of the two calves would be dedicated to the Lord. And he said, there's no need to bother with that. Now we'll treat them both the same, and when the time comes, we will do as I say. And off he went. In a few months, the man entered his kitchen looking very sad and unhappy. When his wife asked him what was troubling him, he said, Honey, I have bad news for you. The Lord's calf is dead. <laughs> but, she, but she said, You have not decided which calf we would dedicate to the Lord. Oh, oh, yes, he said. I had always intended to give the Lord the white one, and it is the white one who has died. The Lord's calf is dead. And of course, you know, we laugh at that story, but the truth is that it is often the Lord's work that is cut out of the budget when times are tough. Oh, vacations stay. Dinners out stay. Netflix stays. The cell phone stays. But the Lord's work, we argue, must give way to the new reality. See, just like Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Eventually, you will have to decide. You'll have to hate the one in order to love the other. You'll be forced to make a choice. The good news, though, is that that choice will tell you the truth about where your values have been assigned, about what the 
real priorities of your heart are. And that will give you an opportunity to make a change. But all of that, of course, begins with an audit. It begins by seeing the choices that you are actually making. And then obviously it needs to progress from there towards repentance, recalibration, and redeployment. Repentance is the most common and the most appropriate response to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Like I said, the Sermon on the Mount is the beautiful tune. It tells us what the Christian life is supposed to look and sound like. So every time you hear a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, the right response is to say, oh man, I'm out of tune. So you take this. You take this, this section of the Sermon on the Mount, this particular tuning fork, you rattle it against your own life, and you go to God with the results in prayer. And you say, oh, God, Lord, I've been spending an awful lot of time, talent, and treasure on things that don't matter, on things that will never be remembered and won't mean a whit 80 billion years from now. Lord God, I've been sliding towards idolatry. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a good prayer. It's a, it's a great start. Now, of course, you want to add to that some, some adjustments and decisions. That's what I mean by recalibrate. You need to adjust your aim on the basis of some new discovered factors. When a sniper in the military is trying to hit a target, of course, a number of factors have to be considered. Wind, speed, humidity, altitude, even the curvature of the earth. Even the curvature of the earth, if they're making a really long shot. All of that has to be accounted for. And if you fail to factor in any of those things, then you're going to find yourself aiming at the wrong target. And what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that most of us fail to factor in the eternal scale of human life and existence. That's like not accounting for the curvature of the earth. We are making long-distance shots, brothers and sisters. So we need to factor in the eternal scale of human life and existence. So practically speaking, the next time you face an investment choice, whatever that may be, right? Buy a boat, buy a new car, buy a cottage, buy a vacation. Anything anything that, that is of value in this life. Just don't forget that this life lasts a lot longer than maybe you're inclined to remember. So factor that in. Maybe you're thinking, this thing, this, this whatever, this, this boat, this cottage, this vacation, this whatever of value, this thing, this will be great for my family. This will be great for us in the next 10, 20, 30 years. The, the kids will come and enjoy, and then the grandchildren will come and enjoy. It's a good decision for us over the next 20, 30, 40 years, and, and, it, and it may well be. It may well be, but this passage is challenging us to think, yeah, okay, sure. Okay, but what about, what about over the next 20 billion years? What about over the next 30 billion years? What about over the next 40 billion years? Will this investment, will this decision matter in the eternal scale of things? Will this investment make it more likely that you and your children and your grandchildren are in God, enjoying Christ for all eternity, yes or no? Because sometimes the answers aren't the same. Sometimes you're right on target over 40 years and you're way off target over 40 billion years. You know, this morning, I don't know how many of you still do the RMM Bible reading plan. Um, 
This morning in the RMM Bible reading plan, we're reading Matthew 13. Jesus tells the parable of the sower, or maybe you know it as the parable of the soils, whatever. Depends on how your Bible labels that. But you know the story, right? Uh, The good seed goes out, and the good seed represents the word of God, and it goes out. And the parable is given to answer the question, why don't all people respond the same way to the word of God? Why does the word of God produce an incredible harvest in the hearts of some people and then accomplish basically nothing in other people? Do you remember the parable? Jesus in that parable identifies three three enemies, as it were, uh, three, three adversaries working against the word of God in the hearts of human beings. Three reasons why the word of God might not produce eternal fruit. And, and because it's certainly not the word of God, right? It's not like the word of God is sometimes good and sometimes bad. So th- three reasons why the word of God might not produce eternal fruit in the heart of a human being. Remember where they are? The first one was demonic opposition. It says, you know, like maybe the devil swoops in and grabs the seed out of your heart. And so demonic opposition. Superficiality was the second one. You remember some people are so shallow, they get all excited. I mean, they think they're Christians. They tell everybody they're a Christian, but they don't actually understand what Christianity is. So they're just making a lot of noise and jumping up and down with their hands in the air. But as soon as hard times come, they're gone. And they were never saved. Superficiality. But do you remember what the last one was? The deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. The seed grows up, but it's also growing up among all these other competing ambitions and concerns. Eventually it gets choked out. And so Jesus, interpreting his own parable, says those are the big three. Those are the big three enemies of faith in a human heart. Spiritual opposition, superficiality, the deceitfulness of riches. So here's the question. I'm, I'm, here's, here's what I'm saying. Why is it that we all think it's a great idea to shower the maximum amount of wealth we can manage on our children and grandchildren? Because actually, according to Jesus, that's one of the big three reasons why eternal life is not birthed in a human heart. So, I mean, is it a good decision in the next 10, 20, 30 years to do this? Maybe. Is it a good decision over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 billion years? Because here's the thing. You will exist somewhere in 40 billion years. Your kids will exist somewhere in 50 billion years. Your grandkids will exist somewhere in 80 billion years. Does this investment make it more likely? Does this investment, is it likely to incline them towards the life of the kingdom or hinder them? in their pursuit of the kingdom? That's a question Jesus is saying here that we need to ask. So that's what I mean by recalibrate. We have some additional factors to consider when we make choices. That's it. And then, of course, when we do that, when we recalibrate, make some new decisions, then we're going to have to redeploy. We're going to have to move some stuff around. Because, again, having money is not the issue. It's about priority and deployment. Interestingly, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but uh, Jesus gives this same teaching in the Gospel of Luke. Have you noticed that? This, uh, the punchline, you cannot serve both God and money, that punchline uh, also shows up in, in Luke 16. But there, there's an illustration that goes with it. It's interesting. Jesus, I mean, this is gold, right? Like, all the content in the Sermon on the Mount was gold. And so Jesus used it in many different situations, and he would build off it in different ways. 
So he gave this teaching again in Luke 16, but this time he provided a different illustration, and it's the weirdest illustration in all the Bible, I think. It's the parable of the um, dishonest or incompetent manager. Do you remember that one? So there was this guy, and he was a money manager for a super wealthy master, but he was incompetent, and so he ended up losing a ton of money, and uh, he heard the news that he was about to be fired. But he didn't, <clears throat> he didn't know what else he could do. He said, I'm too old to dig. Like, I can't become a, man, uh, a menial laborer. I'm too old to dig, and I'm too poor to beg, so how am I going to provide for my retirement? So out of desperation, he actually takes a bunch of his master's money, and he moves it around, and he makes side deals with a bunch of his master's wealthy clients, saving them tons of money on the assumption that once he's unemployed, they'll feel indebted to him, and maybe they'll give him a job or at least let, them, let him crash on the couch. Weird story. And yet the punchline is the weirdest part of all. Jesus, this is the application Jesus makes. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Are you hearing that? Now listen, there's a lot Jesus is not commending in that story. This is a parable with one point. He's not commending you, he's not saying, be so incompetent that you're about to get fired from your job. He's not saying, while your master's not looking, after you've, given, you've been given two weeks' notice, use those two weeks to basically defraud your master. Not saying that either. He's making one point, and the one point is this. Use whatever money you have at your disposal to open doors for yourself in the future. That's what smart people do. That's what smart business people do. And that's what smart people do in the kingdom of God as well. Therefore, brothers and sisters, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Oh God, help. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Father, be, be the center, be our first love, be our highest ambition. And by your spirit, Lord, would you push back into proper orbit and priority every other love and ambition in our lives. We want to be rightly ordered. We want to be at peace. We want to be in, enjoying you right now and for all eternity with our children, with our grandchildren. We want to be in God through Christ 80 billion years from now, Lord. So help us to begin striving towards that end even today. We ask in Jesus' name.